Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I've just finished shoveling again. Um, We'll see how many more times I shovel between the time I've started writing this and the time I've finished recording it. Um, If I remember, I'll give you a count. And now that I'm actually recording this, I think maybe only two more times. It did finally stop snowing. Um, I really can't complain too much though. I do love winter and the snow is really, really pretty. Um, And the last bit of shoveling was light and fluffy and pretty easy work, um, at least as far as shoveling goes. But today's episode is not about snow. A far cry from it. Today we have a really dark play from Euripides. The Bacchae. This is one of his last plays, possibly the last one, although not the last one produced. Um, we do have one more play to cover in two weeks. Uh, the Bacchae was written around 410 BCE. Euripides died in 406, and then his son produced the play, or possibly his nephew, um, Euripides the Younger, produced the play at Dionysia in 405, where it won a remarkable first prize. So, Like all great artists, Euripides simply wasn't appreciated in his lifetime. Just after he died? Sure, no problem. Um, But in all honesty, this is a very well-constructed play. It is very funny, and it is disturbingly dark. Um, And not dark in a black humor sort of way. Um, It is a roller coaster, Uh, and, and it is masterful. So yeah, it probably did deserve that first prize. Obviously, no clue what exactly it was up against, um, but it really is an excellent work. And it should be more familiar to people than it is because because it is so good. Maybe, maybe when Brad is able to start directing again, he'll do this and I can get him to come on for another bonus episode about how he interpreted it for his students in a modern audience. Um, Brad, Nikki, if you're listening, hint, hint. Anyway, the Bacchae tackles a story that would have been familiar to an ancient Athenian audience, but isn't quite as well known anymore, um, which I think makes it all the more shocking to a modern audience. Anyway, uh, whatever background you need on the plot is described within the play, so I'm going to tell it as Euripides does, you know, for dramatic effect, if you will. Our cast includes Dionysus, the god of wine himself. Um, Bacchus was originally an epithet for Dionysus. So even though I think we're frequently taught um, that Bacchus is the Roman name for Dionysus, he's actually one of the few gods whose name is pretty much the same for both the Greeks and the Romans. They both called him Dionysus. They both called him Bacchus. Um, And that's why his followers can be called Bacchae, the title of this play, The Bacchae. Um, so we have Dionysus. Then we have Cadmus, who happens to be Dionysus's grandfather. And we have Pentheus, who is Dionysus's cousin. Pentheus is currently the king of Thebes. Uh, Cadmus has abdicated to let his grandson rule. Pentheus's mother is Agave or Agave, depending on your translation. Um, you might see either a U or a V in her name. Um, so I will probably wind up going, sometimes I might pronounce it Agave, sometimes I might pronounce it Agave. Um, I make no guarantees what will come out of my mouth as I'm reading the uh, summary. Um, anyway, um, 
The play set in Thebes. So, of course, we can't have a play set in Thebes without everyone's favorite blind seer, Tiresias. So, of course, we have Tiresias. Um, those are the named characters. Then we have um, the usual servant types, messenger types that have lines and no names. Um, and the chorus is comprised of the maenads who worship Dionysus. I am working from Paul Roche's 1974 translation. Um, it's lovely. I really, I really like it. Uh, but you should have no problem finding a free translation online or some version from your local library. You, you should have no, no trouble accessing the play, even though it's not the m- most well-known of Euripides' plays. So with that, we'll take a short break so that you can buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride. The play opens in front of the palace in Thebes, and Dionysus enters. He introduces himself. He is the son of Zeus and Semele. He's returned to his mother's homeland in Thebes. Her tomb is just over there. It's still smoking, even though it's been 20 years since Hera tricked Semele into asking her lover to show himself to her in all his glory, um, which turned out to be a lightning strike that killed the mere mortal Semele. Zeus rescued his son from Semele's womb and sewed him up in his thigh um, as a, yeah, anyway, and after the baby Dionysus was born from Zeus's thigh, he was raised elsewhere. Um, That's another whole myth in and of itself. There is a funny story that goes with it, but that is not told in this play, so I will save that for another time. Anyway, Cadmus, Semele's father, built her a wonderful tomb, and Dionysus approves of that. Over the past several years, however, Dionysus has traveled around Asia, growing his cult, and he's now returned to Greece to bring his worship here to his ancestral home of Thebes. He's converted, or perhaps bewitched, all of the women of Thebes, including his three aunts, Agawe, Atanoe, and Aino. You see, Pentheus, his cousin and current king of Thebes, doesn't believe that Dionysus is really the son of Zeus. And Dionysus is going to make him regret that. So that's why he's here in Thebes in this disguised form with all of his maenads who have followed him from Asia. Dionysus exits as the chorus of maenads enter, singing a song of praise to their beloved god. Tiresias enters. He is dressed and ready to go worship Dionysus. He knocks on the palace door and calls for Cadmus. Cadmus enters, and he too is dressed and ready to go and worship Dionysus. Remember how I said this play is funny? This, this play is funny. This is a delightful scene of these two old men getting ready to go and party like they're still young. I mean, it, it, it re- it's, just, it's just charming and delightful. Um, and then Pentheus enters, and he is a downer. He berates the old men for what he considers their foolishness, and he tells them exactly what he thinks of his dead aunt um, Semele and her illegitimate son. He's rounded up as many of the Theban women turned maenads as he could um, and thrown them in jail. And these women include his other aunts, I know, and Atanoe, and Agawe, his own mother. Tiresias, of course, tries to warn Pentheus that the best course of action is to acknowledge that Dionysus is the son of Zeus. Better be safe than sorry. But Pentheus refuses. Grandpa Cadmus tries too, but Pentheus will hear none of it, and he exits into the palace. 
Tiresias and Cadmus agree that they will still worship this new god, and they exit to do so. The chorus sings another song about how awesome Dionysus is. Some soldiers enter. They've captured Dionysus, who to them is just this mysterious stranger. He's come to Thebes in disguise, so no one knows that he's either the god Dionysus or Pentheus's cousin Dionysus. A soldier calls for Pentheus, who is pleased to see that the stranger has finally been captured. Um, okay, you know the interrogation scene in Jesus Christ Superstar, the, the part with Pontius Pilate? Um, yeah, it's like that, only Pentheus is less empathetic or empathetic at all. Um, and, and Dionysus does actually answer the questions. Um, so I guess it's not like that, but it's like Dionysus lives up to his mysterious stranger epithet, though. He answers the questions, but they aren't necessarily straight answers or the answers that Pentheus wants to hear. Um, but, but you can still get that visual from from Superstar of, of Pentheus ranting and raving, kind of like Pontius Pilate, while Dionysus just stands there responding most calmly, um, kind of eerily. He's so calm because he, is, he knows he has power, right? Um, anyway, eventually Pentheus and some of the soldiers lead Dionysus off into the palace. The chorus sings a song calling for Dionysus to come down from Olympus and destroy Pentheus. As the song ends, much to the surprise of the soldiers who are on stage keeping watch over the chorus, there is thunder and lightning and an earthquake, and Dionysus calls out from inside in dialogue with the chorus. This is his doing. This is a display of his power. All should tremble before him. And the chorus loves this. Oh, they eat this up. Uh, eventually, the palace doors burst open, and Dionysus, still in his mysterious stranger disguise, enters. He tells them how Pentheus totally freaked out during the thunder and lightning and earthquake. Pentheus then runs out of the palace. He is furious. Who freed the stranger? Dionysus shrugs. I mean, Dionysus freed him, of course. Pentheus sends his soldiers to surround the town to keep Dionysus out. Dionysus scoffs at this move, but, but stops when he sees a herdsman coming and suggests that maybe they should listen to what the herdsman has to say first. The herdsman reports what's been happening up on Mount Catheron. Um, the Maenads, who have been worshipping Dionysus there, have gone crazy. All, all of the women that Pentheus had locked up, yeah, they've escaped, including Agawe, Aino, and Atanoe. And then he goes into great detail, and, and I mean, it is wild. At first it's all pastoral and lovely and they're just happy and 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 peaceful and lounging around, drinking wine and eating grapes or whatever. Um and and then and then they all just kind of go nuts and start pillaging and killing animals with their bare hands. Um because that's what Maine heads do. Dionysus suggests that maybe Pentheus wants to go on a scouting mission to see what the worship of Dionysus really looks like and not just take this herdsman's word um, at face value. And Pentheus hesitates at first, um, but Dionysus talks him into it. Pentheus exits into the palace. Dionysus pauses to tell his followers that everything is going according to plan, and then he follows Pentheus into the palace. The chorus sings a song of hope. Their God is going to prove his divinity, and all is good. Dionysus and Pentheus enter. 
Pentheus is now disguised as a Maenad. And while cross-dressing itself is no longer the font of humor that it might have once seemed, there is a lot of humor in this scene as Dionysus prepares Pentheus to go out and pretend to be a Maenad, teaching him how to hold his thrissus, which is this bundle of reeds that are part of the worship of Dionysus, and joking about whether he looks more like his mother or his aunt Ino. Eventually, an enthusiastic Pentheus exits. Dionysus laughs maniacally and then exits too. The chorus sings a song of sixpence, I mean vengeance, about how the hounds of hell have been released in the form of the maenads and that the man disguised as a woman will live to regret his behavior, or rather not live to regret his behavior and his mother will lead the charge. A messenger comes running on. He's barely escaped with his life. Remember how the Maenads went crazy and started pillaging and killing animals? Yeah, well, they stopped killing livestock and started killing people. Or rather, person. Pentheus, to be exact. And he provides great detail about how the Maenads, led by Agawe, thinking that he was a lion, tore him apart. Literally. It's graphic. And a very long speech. I mean, the speech goes on four pages describing exactly what has happened to Pentheus and um, impressively exactly what Agawe seems to have been thinking during the whole time. Anyway, it, it's, it's long. It is graphic. You can read it yourself. The messenger exits. The chorus sings in praise of Dionysus and in pity of Agawe, who has killed her own son. Agawe and the Theban women turned Maenads enter. Agawe is carrying Pentheus's head and is quite convinced that it's the head of a lion. She calls for her father to come and marvel at her kill. Cadmus enters and cries. It's, it's just like what happened to his other grandson, Actaeon, Autonoe's son, who earned the wrath of Artemis and was torn, about by his, torn apart by his hounds on, you guessed it, Mount Kitharon. Gradually, he helps Agawe overcome her Dionysian madness and recognize that it is not the head of a lion that she's holding. And then they prepare for a funeral. The chorus sings a final song in celebration of Dionysus and his triumph over Pentheus. Dionysus then appears as himself, a god. And he crows about how he has shown Pentheus who's a god and who isn't. And then, for good measure, he tells Cadmus that he and his wife will also be punished. They'll be turned into snakes. And they'll go into battle, but they'll loot one of Apollo's shrines, which won't be a good thing. But Ares will take pity on them. And that's why you don't cross the son of Zeus. Cadmus pleads for mercy, but Dionysus shrugs him off and exits. Agawe and Cadmus cry over their fates. The chorus finally decides that maybe Dionysus has been a little harsh in his punishments. Everyone exits, and the play ends. I remember the first time I read this play. I was shocked when I got to the end. Dionysus always seems so happy, but he is a vindictive little SOB. 
His punishment of Pentheus and Agawe, well, brutal makes some sort of sense. Um, but then he goes on and punishes Cadmus and his wife too. I mean, his wife who never even appears on stage and whose name we hardly ever hear. I can't, her name's Harmonia. I can't even remember if it's said, her name is said in the play, but she gets punished too. Um, and I mean, we see Cadmus as a believer in Dionysus' divinity from the very start of the play. But apparently, that's not good enough for Dionysus. I, I yeah, oh, it, it, and that ending is so brutal that I had completely forgotten how funny the play is at the start. I mean, this could have been a lighthearted romp about Tiresias and Cadmus, but but it doesn't stay there. Um, and it really is one of Euripides' finest works. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a couple of different plays got mashed together. Uh, there aren't characters that appear for half of the play and then disappear never to even be spoken of again, let alone to appear on stage again. It is, it is tightly constructed and it has a very effective dramatic arc. Um, it is, it is a wonderful play. Horrific, but wonderful. Um, but what really struck me on this reading, beyond the humor, is the foreignness of Dionysus's cult. And I don't, I don't remember us discussing that so much when I studied it um, in college. Um, I think we were more fo- focused on on the darkness and kind of the the overall arc of Euripides's plays that get progressively darker the older he gets, and how black this play is. That. I mean, it is so hopeless at the end that even people who seem to have been doing the right thing get punished. Um, and I, so I don't think we really talked about about that foreignness. So Dionysus may have been born to a Theban mother. Um, he is Greek by birth, right? But he grew up and he formed his cult in Asia, uh, which really means what we would call the Middle East today. Um, you know, Persia, the Middle East you know, um, Turkey, kind of that, that region. Troy was in modern day Turkey and that was considered Asia um, as far as the Greeks were concerned. So that kind of gives you an idea of the geography. Um, But something specific stood out to me um, when thinking about that geography. And that is um, when, when the main ads are all, when the herdsman is describing the main ads, um, before they go crazy, when they're still all peaceful and happy and just drinking and whatever, um, that they, they'll they all have their thrissus, right? This this bundle of reeds that are part of the worship, and they'll strike it on a rock or the ground or whatever. And oh, I I want some fresh water. Strike it on a rock. Oh, look, I get fresh water. Oh, I really would like um some milk. Strike it on a rock. Get milk, and and I want something sweet. Strike it on a rock and get honey. And so the land. Dionysus makes the land literally flow with milk and honey. Um, And if you have been raised in a Judeo-Christian tradition like I was, then when you think of a land flowing with milk and honey, you don't think of Greece. You think of Israel. You think of the promised land. And Dionysus came to Greece from the east where that biblical land flowing with milk and honey was supposed to exist. And I'd never caught the relationship between 
Judaism and the land flowing with milk and honey um, and and the Hebrews and the Israelites and all all of that biblical what as someone who's raised Christian Old Testament story um, and that mythology and the relationship with this newer Greek cult um, and as far as um, history is concerned these these cults existed at at the same time it's not um you know judaism was around by the time this play was written um and that just is an interesting juxtaposition of of how religions grow and spread and develop and we know dionysus is a young god and so he wasn't originally part of the Greek pantheon and was brought in and then adopted into the Greek pantheon. And that's what we see happening um, in this play. But it's interesting, the relationship to, to other religions that aren't necessarily in the worship as a whole, but in some little details. Um, that's that's what, what struck me on this reading most. Um, that that there was this emphasis that oh they're foreign these these followers are foreign and this this mysterious stranger is is this effeminate foreigner and we could get into the whole effeminate thing um but let's do that in a discussion on the blog so what did you think of the Bacchae do you think it's worth worthy of that first prize um which again the only first prize ever awarded to a play by Euripides do you do you think it would have won if it hadn't been produced posthumously? <laughs> was the fact that Euripides was dead, did that help it? Um, how how would you direct it today? I have multiple questions related to that on the blog because it, it's a tricky, it's a tricky play. It's a good play, but it's tricky. Um, please, please pop over to the blog and share your thoughts. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Find me on Patreon as Triumvir Clio, and that URL is in the show notes too. On Wednesday, we will finish reading the Argonautica. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.